Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. Oh, boy. Each time I say this, but I mean it, like you are in for a treat. And I can't wait to hear more of Dr. Mike Estramonte's story. I got to spend a day with him and his management team in an offsite planning session. And I got to hear a lot of his heartbeat in that and uh, see how he interacted with his team, which is really uh, very telling, which is really cool, which is why he's on this podcast, quite frankly. But you are in for a treat. So I can't wait to go into more of your story, Dr. Mike. And um, but as we do on the Anything But Typical podcast, we start with a heartbeat question. So here's the question. So you and your two boys, ages 12 and 14, are out doing what you like to do when you're not traveling and exploring someplace new or new museum, et cetera. But you're out at Romare Bearden Park, tossing the Frisbee back and forth. Somebody recognizes you. They're talking about you. Don't realize that the wind is to their back and you can hear everything that they're saying. What is it that you would hope that they would say about you? I mean, obviously um, they're speaking in a, in a nice, uh, in a, in a way that's, uh, you know, honoring, but, uh, I, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't really dwell on one of, one of the things that one of my coaches said a long time is whatever people say about you is none of your business. Um, you know, and I, uh, I try to adhere to that. Um, I don't want to say I've, I've developed thick skin over my years, but, um, but obviously yeah, you want people to, uh, to know that who you are and not everybody, um, unfortunately, because of media snippets and that type of stuff can really get to know you, but um, know that I'm a person of integrity, that obviously I, I care deeply and, and, and love deeply. And I, I've always done things with, um, you know, with the right intentions and, uh, you know, whether uh, we've made a mistake or a blunder that ownership is, is extremely important learning. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I guess sometimes, you know, when, cause I haven't, I have had this happen before and, uh, and, and when you, uh, when you hear things that maybe aren't, are not honoring, um, you know, take it in stride, learn from it and, uh, and whether it's fair or unfair, uh, digest it and learn something from it. So, um, yeah, but obviously you, you, you hope they're, they're speaking in terms of integrity and, and think something that's honoring, but you know, obviously that's not always going to be the case because you know, world we live in, people are only going to get snippets. A great point right and it's the first time on the show that, that that's been talked about in that that question right the fact that you don't have the control over it and if you let their opinion which may just be a snippet of you impact you in a way that it's uh instead of you just hearing it learning from it taking it with a grain of salt so it's a great way to to start this off i i like that a lot and, and it's, it, it's definitely given me perspective this year with all the news media interviews I've done. Um, I'm much more likely to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think I've always been that way in general, but knowing that once, once I've been in the public as much as I've been in this year, uh, that, you know, there's always another side to the story and, and uh, people, are, people are extremely quick to judge. But I'd say, you know, for the most part, um, I'd say well over 90% of people are usually giving the benefit of the doubt, but that 10% can be really, really loud. So like I said, sometimes you just have to have some thick skin and, uh, and, and hope for the best that people are, uh, people are reasonable and, and understand, but, uh, but no, the people that obviously know me well, um, I don't have to worry about that. that that's, 
it's just, it's just me. Yep. Perfect. So for the listeners that don't know, Mike is the founder and CEO of Starmount Healthcare Management. And so Mike, I, I want to give you 30 seconds here at the start to just give us a quick description or give the listeners a quick description of what Starmount is. And then mm-hmm. I want to dive into your background a little bit. Yeah. Uh, for my first, uh, 14 years out of uh, school, I was, I, I was a practicing chiropractor, served on a bunch of boards for the, for the profession, licensure, president of the association, president of the licensing board. And then I, uh, um, I opened up four practices. And not to say that I got bored, I absolutely love my original profession, um, but I wanted to take on another challenge. Uh, I knew that uh, a lot of the areas our clinics, our chiropractic clinics were in were considered to be uh, historically marginalized communities. And and we had a hard time making medical referrals. So the first thing I had to do, obviously not a medical doctor can't own a medical clinic. So what I had to do is um, find, find a medical doctor that I could you know, generally work with that could create all the clinical protocols and handle of clinical stuff where I could create a management company and support the clinic and really figure out a way to go into these communities where there's a lot of uninsured or Medicaid, where there's not a lot of, uh, uh, you know, where there's not going to be a lot of uh, traditionally speaking margin to be able to uh, to continue your operations and figure it out. And uh, I think that's always been a little bit of our, uh, our, our, our uh, you know, operating system is just get in there and figure it out as we go along. So let's stick with the, the theme of why here at this beginning, uh, what led you to, to becoming a chiropractor? Why did you go that route? Uh, through school and, and to start your career? Oh, goodness. Um, my parents, ever since I was a little kid, they'd, they would go and uh, my, my mother had horrible back pain and I'd, uh, I'd get to see, I mean, she couldn't live without her chiropractor. Um, and I love the uh, philosophy behind chiropractic, the nerve system. I did, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a chiropractor when I was probably 10 years old. Um, I just, I, I love the natural philosophy of healthcare and, uh, um, so like I said, I've never abandoned it. Um, I got, you got my adjustment. My brother is a chiropractor here in Charlotte as well. I got my adjustment from him today. Um, but it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a natural passion. I kind of grew up with. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Right. You saw the positive impact of it at an early age. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, and then I want to flip the scope a little bit of you starting your own practice, starting four practices, right. Doing the entrepreneurship route right out of school, right? Very early. Did you have exposure to entrepreneurship or business ownership when you were younger? Yeah, probably when I was like six years old, I would, I used to try to st- sell all my stuffed animals. I was, uh, you know, it's funny. I never, you know, my mother would say this all the time. You always find a way to make money. You know, for me, it was, it was never about making money. It was just to see if I could do it. Um, if I could, uh, the challenge you know, of it, the challenge of it. And it's, and I, I find myself that's always been, been the way. Sometimes I'll do things that there's absolutely no remunerative value in it, um, uh, financially, but, uh, I just wanted to see if we could do it. And, and that's kind of, uh, yeah, that kind of defines, I just, I just love projects. I like taking something on to see if we can do it. And, uh, I don't know what the original question was, but that's, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what, what I've always done. Yeah. The entrepreneurial spirit. I always, uh, you know, I had a, I had a painting company from age, I think my, my buddy and I sat there and we were trying to figure out how not to work for our fathers in, in the yard at the age of like 14. So we started a painting company and we went to every school teacher at our, at our middle school and high school and, and asked them if we could paint their garage or their barn. We lived in upstate New York where there's a lot of barns. We'd, we'd paint barns and fences and nobody trusted us to paint their houses until we got a little bit older. But by the time I was 20, 21 or 22 and getting ready to fin- finish undergrad, um, by that time we had painted over 20 houses in one summer. Uh, we had, a, we had our own crew trucks, equipment. Um, I could have, could have stayed 
and in, in the painting business. Um, but honestly, I hate painting. So, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was good money at the time. Yep. Um, with that starting at 14, having it evolve as you, as you grow, get older, you start getting employees at a really early age. Um, what were some of the lessons that, that you learned doing that with your, your buddy that you were then able to carry forward, um, with your, your chiropractic career? Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the people that I work with are my friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, a uh, I, I like, uh, like to work with people that I trust. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, it's always, you know, there's a, there's a balance to that, um, because it can go wrong sometimes, but usually when it goes right, it goes right in a really good way. And, uh, but, uh, the crew that I had working with me all the way through school, we all figured out a way to remain friends. Um, I think it's always, it's a little bit of my personality. That I always give the benefit of the doubt because, um, I mean, I definitely screwed up sometimes. They definitely screwed up sometimes, showed up late, um, you know, <laughs> let me just put it that way. When you're, when you're in college and you're still painting, people would show, not show up because they were hung over from the night before and leave, leave you holding the bucket, um, literally. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we, I had a lot of learning moments working, uh, understanding human nature and, uh, and, and it, it really it's carried through to, uh, to the organization today instead of, Instead of just having four or five people, we have, you know, hundreds of people that are working within the organization, especially the leadership team. I, I, they're, they're not people that I just work with. They're, they're a lot of them are my friends. I could see that in that one day that I spent with you and your team. Like, the, and I'll use this word intentionally, the love that you had for your team and the love that they had for you and for each other was palpable in such a healthy, such a healthy way. And that doesn't mean that you're perfect. I mean, we all have our own warts and our own falters and, you know, falterings, et cetera. But it was, it was truly, uh, you know, an honor to be in the presence of all of you guys and to just see that. And I kept thinking, man, I wish every company had this, but, you know, I want to go back to a little bit of that entrepreneurial background that you just, <laughs> you came, must've come out of the womb that, you know, thinking about that, but, and it's clear, you said it wasn't about the money. It was about the challenge. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, so, you know, I know of some of the things that, that took you into these marginalized areas, you know, you uh, didn't set up shop in the most lucrative part of Ballantyne or South Park or Mars Park, you went into marginalized area where there was great need and not the ability oftentimes to pay. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the why, why there? I mean, as, as a as a chiropractor, when I would want to make a referral for somebody that uh, would need, you know, something that was beyond the scope of our practice, it was frustrating um, to refer somebody. Uh, there was a few uh, sliding scale clinics in Charlotte at the time, but you'd you sometimes have to wait three to six months just to get somebody seen for a very, you know, trivial condition. So I said, "There's got to be a better way," and I, and there's got to be a way that you can you can uh, create enough income to at least at least break even. And uh, and I and I said I didn't know how we were going to really do it. And uh, boy, the first the first year year and a half was uh, there was a lot of bumps and bruises prior to COVID occurring. And uh, obviously COVID redefined our organization. But um, you know we were we were just at the point where we we had already opened a second clinic, and it was at the point where um, the first one was breaking even, the other one was getting close, and uh, 
And I was starting to learn about other things that we could do to, to um, drive uh, ancillary, you know, income to, uh, to support the clinics. And really not, the, the, once I got into it, the point of doing it really was to figure out a way to scale it. So we could either scale it ourselves or hopefully teach other organizations how to do this, how to not be afraid to go into a community where there's not a lot of insurance or a high Medicaid population and still figure out a way to, uh, to, pu to pull it off, um, economically speaking. And, uh, and, you know, and, and something I absolutely want to mention, none, none of this is worth doing unless you're going to get five-star care. And I'm talking about from a clinical experience, but just as importantly from, uh, you know, a customer service patient, patient experience where you're greeted with a smile and respect and, everybody's treated the same, no matter, you know, whatever their income or socioeconomic bracket is. You, you, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the quickest ways to get fired from the organization is if you treat one person differently from the other based upon any, any number of factors. What was a contributing factor to that awareness? And I will even say tenderness towards people that don't necessarily have means. Again, you know, there are plenty of people that will go into various professions uh, based on chasing the money. But, you know, and yeah, you painted, and even though you don't like painting and there was some money in it, but there was probably a challenge and you got to work with some of your friends and you didn't have to work for your dad, right? But, uh, it, um, it, it, was, it was beer money, um, especially in college. <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, I mean, I... Uh, I'll give my mother all the credit. Uh, she's a, a school teacher. She taught third grade, but she was obviously, you know, a school teacher in upstate New York. There's a big difference between upstate New York and, and down in, in near Long Island and New York City that their income was a little higher, quite a bit higher down there to meet the cost of living, obviously. But in upstate New York, my mother was, I want to say, when I was growing up, uh, school teachers were paid maybe $25,000 annually. And, um, and the amount of work she did for that after, I mean, she, her day, her day didn't end at, at two 30 when school was dismissed. She, uh, she was one of those teachers that stayed well beyond uh, her time. And she was, a uh, um, she's just an amazing teacher. She just cared and loved her kids so much. She'd even some of the kids that, you know, parents that sometimes maybe, I, I don't know, neglected them or um, she would, you know, she cut my hair until I was in college. Um, and even when I come home, she was, but she would take kids home that didn't, didn't have a haircut. She would give them clothes, um, that were hand-me-downs from my older brothers, uh, in, um, and definitely, I don't remember some of these stories, but she used to tell me that I would, I would actually bring extra sneakers or <laughs> into school and give them away to kids, um, at a really, really young age. And I think it was just, a it was a mindset that she instilled from a very, very early age with me. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that's probably where it came from. So Mike, I want to, I want to build off of that a little bit and, and talk about the, <clears throat> the piece of when you, you had the, the practices and you're making the transition into creating Starmount, right? So you've been running these practices. You've got this idea and vision of what you want Starmount to, to look like. You've alluded to it a little bit, but um, talk to us of what is what did Starmount look like at the beginning? And, and what's that transition in your life of going from running practices to now starting and building Starmount? Yeah, you know, at, at, at 46, I don't know how, how the hell I had all the time to do this stuff, but the uh, back then... Uh, I used to practice. I'd see, you know, sometimes between 50 and 70 
patient visits a day myself. Um, and while at the same time, I had two really young kids and uh, I was at, at one month, I was both the president of the licensing board and state chiropractic association. I don't know where I, where I had time to do all this stuff, but one of the things I realized um, from when I had one clinic and I didn't have any associate doctors to now we have, I think 15 chiropractors working for the four chiropractic clinics. Before I had all that, I was everything. I was HR, which I'm awful at HR. Um, I mean, uh, hiring, I should say, recruiting. Uh, I, I learned how to do all my own accounting. I learned QuickBooks. I learned how to do uh, uh, everything from marketing, um, all the things that our management company does today. One of the things I think has really made me successful um, running the management company is because I kind of did a little bit of everything because I was forced to. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the things, I think it's the one minute manager or one of those books, I can't remember which one it is, but um, you continue to unload the things that you're not good at or you don't like doing. And as soon as uh, the, the number one thing I did, and it, was, it wasn't necessarily that I didn't like doing it, but I just, I always wanted to hire everybody I interviewed. So the, my first hire, she's actually, she, was, she became my HR ma manager at one point. And uh, now she's our chief operating officer, Tracy Hummel amazing, amazing, uh, mother. Uh, she's an amazing wife, uh, but for running the organization, I, I, it's hard for me to take credit for a lot of the things that have, have occurred this year, because without Tracy, it definitely would not have been possible. So I'll say from an HR standpoint, she was an amazing recruiter for bank of America. So, um, she's, uh, she, she took off there and now she does everything. Um, but really, yeah, just figuring out one thing at a time. The thing I hung, hung on to the, the longest was probably the fiscal department. Um, I, I I enjoy numbers for some reason. My brain's wired to understand P&Ls and how to do budgets and how to uh, work on pro formas and stuff like that, which I don't know how they fully go hand in hand because I'm a science guy. Like I was a biochemistry major in college and, you know, as a chiropractor, you wouldn't, but that was a, but I think that was one of the things that helped make, make the organization successful was that I, I had the, the economic brain and we just kind of pieced everything together little by little. Um, Marketing was always the, the, the toughest department to build for, for me, for some reason. I never, I had a hard time handing it over, but I wasn't, I wasn't bad at it, but I wasn't as good as I thought I could have hired somebody else to do. And what I realized eventually is really your marketing department, even when you're small, you need to have two different, two totally different minds working in that department. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if I'm going off on a tangent here, guys. No, this is perfect. Keep going. Yeah, this, this is the type of stuff that if I could offer advice to any other person that's kind of growing up their own company, uh, you, obviously market marketing and, and you know, getting your community outreach out there. Um, that marketing director, you need somebody that understands logistics and organization, um, but then you also need that creative person, and they're totally not the right the same person. They've never been, and if you find somebody, it's a unicorn. Um, and, uh, and if you try to force that together, you're only going to create frustration. But part of the challenge is obviously as you're growing, you can only afford as a company, you're like, all right, what's the next hire? Do I bring in this or do I bring in that? Marketing, you have to do them both at the same time because you'll just frustrate yourself. And, uh, and if you can figure out how to bring in two people at the same time, but have, have each of those types of brains. Um, and then, you know, as time went out by, by, you know, obviously we have social media department, we have uh, graphics design department, we have multiple people. So you just add on in your, in each department as you feel like you need to. So like my, my accounting department, I started just with a simple bookkeeper and then I brought in a bookkeeper and a controller and then a finance director and then a, a CFO. So it's, I, I, 
you just add what it makes sense to next as your uh, as your funds allow for it. And uh, yeah, so there's there's my yeah. Favorite. But you talked about something as if it was second nature, and it's why most small businesses, especially in the the chiropractor space um, mm-hmm. or any type of service that could be a one man shop, <clears throat> why they never truly get profitable or build a an organization, and it's because they don't replace themselves. Right. You get these people where they become solopreneurs and they're basically just creating a job for themselves. It's it's what my my father was, where he's always had his own business, but couldn't ever do the employee thing. So what and maybe it was just your mindset of growing up, but what gave yourself the permission to to go make that first hire? Right. To go out there and say, yep, I I need somebody because I need to free up my time in my life. I didn't want to do it anymore. I, well, it wasn't a matter of, uh, it That's wasn't a great a answer. Of, it, it wasn't a matter of, uh, oh, I'm going to hire this so I can take some time off. It was, I can hire this so I can do something yeah. else that is going to move the organization forward or I have more fun doing, you know, what's funny is that, you know, I belong to a, a coaching, a business coaching thing called strategic coach. And um, a lot of the concepts as the coach was going over and, and I'd done coaching prior to Dan Sullivan. He's, and he's awesome, by the way, if, 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 if I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this might, might already have heard of him. Um, I was reading a lot of the books. I'm like, huh, you know, what? I, I kind of already, I'm already doing that. I'm already doing that. And which is, which is cool. Um, but it's when you, when you're going through a coaching program and whether it's, you know, it's, it, you know, it's kind of expensive to do some of the, this type of coaching when you're doing 90% of what they're suggesting, that's great. But holy cow, when you find that 10% that you hadn't heard yet and, and a light bulb goes off, um, that's what's really allowed me to take the organization to, to another level. And, and it's, uh, I'm a huge believer in business coaching. I have friends that are like, who needs coaching? That's, that's a bunch of not, I, uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's short sightedness. Um, so when did you get your first coach? Do you remember? 2006. Um, he was, uh, he focused on chiropractic. His name was Charles, Charles Ward, Charlie Ward. I thought <laughs> I got introduced. I thought he was the basketball player for the Knicks. And I was like, what, what, where am I going to this seminar? But, uh, <laughs> but anyways, uh, just an amazing guy. And, you know, a lot of his things that he taught, um, it was, uh, what I needed as a, from a coach, um, wasn't like office systems. I had decent office systems at the time, not that they couldn't have been improved, but he gave me headspace. Um, I needed somebody to help hold me accountability. I was at a point in my life where I was losing role models and mentors. And I, uh, I had him to say, Hey, go read this book. Um, like right behind you on the shelf. Good to great. Um, he gave me that book and he said, I want you to read that in two weeks and, and, uh, write a summary for me. And it was, it was just like, Oh, and this guy was older than me. I'm like, it was like, I felt like I was my old school teacher. I was like, shit, right. I got to read this. Um, so uh, I read it. And, and then the next, after I read that, he gave me another one. And it was just a matter of, it was nice to have somebody holding me accountable. And uh, um, I don't think, I mean, I could live to be 120 and I'd still love to have coaches holding me accountable for personal growth because it, once you stop growing personally, that's when I think that's when you start to get old. Pause. <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> Listen to that. And if you've listened to any of our episodes, that is a common theme across every one of our guests. Teachable, lifetime learner. Some people learn by audiobooks, some people learn by regular books, but they all 
every one of them has a mentor or they're part of a coaching program. And this is not selling coaching. <laughs> you know, that's not it at all. But so if I did the math right, that was about when you were about 30 years old. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it would have been at 30, 31. All right. My first coach was when I was 28 <laughs> on my first turnaround. Same thing. Um, and we, we had to, and, but if you have somebody that knows what they're doing and you're actually willing to pay where it actually costs you something mm -hmm. that you're going to pay attention and you're actually likely going to do something with it versus just giving it mental assent. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, you know, I, I love that. Like, it's just this massive line that comes through every one of our guests I, I, I love it, which it just dispels this mystery or this notion of, oh, well, you're CEO of this awesome company or whatever, and you got all the answers and, you know, you just live fat and happy and lazy. Well, you're anything but lazy. And so I, I want to go down another little rabbit trail from what I've heard. And this is really from Tracy. You're a big fitness guy and you like you've got a sauna thing and you've got your, like, you, you have a ritual, you have a, a thing on wellness and all that. So talk to us about how you got into that mm -hmm. and some of the things that you do and why. Yeah. So, uh, one of the, uh, so I was talking about that coach. One of the books he had me read was a Robin Sharma book. I don't know if you were, it was the monk who sold his Ferrari. Great, great book. He's got a whole series. And, um, I, like I said, I don't really listen to podcasts all that much but i listen to him on youtube and he has he does that podcast but i will say uh he put me on the path of uh of getting up early um i usually get up between five and five thirty um i'll uh I'll, I'll, i have a gym at my house um i'll work out do cardio yoga um but probably my favorite is i i, I put in a a sauna um a steam a cold plunge and a red light and i feel like I try to do it at least three to four days a week because I do feel like you, you feel incredibly energized. And I'll probably say the number one thing is the, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the special with Tony Robbins where he jumps in the cold plunge. I, I actually jackhammered the back of my garage out, dug six feet down into the ground <laughs> and uh, put concrete, put all the plumbing. I got a, an aquarium chiller. Um, so I, it's down, it's down to 50 degrees every day. And I jump in for three minutes a day. Um, and that's something that no matter what my day is, I'll, I jump in there for three minutes because it's uh, even if I don't have time to do anything else, that'll uh, I don't know. It obviously, wakes you up, but uh, but it does something else to your body uh, that decreases inflammation. There's so many health benefits to doing a cold plunge. Um, so yeah, I mean, th th there's a lot of other things I do, but that that routine, I you, you obviously you get into work after doing something like that. If you know, I'm, I roll into the office around nine o'clock, I'm, I'm I'm fully energized. <laughs> Great. I've been on the verge of getting a sauna or not. So thanks. Thanks, Mike. Now, now I'm going to end up doing that. <laughs> it's great. There's so much, there's so much health benefits to sauna. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's funny. No, but, uh, but no, I, I, I always, I love showing off the cold plunge because it took me so long to figure it out. And if you go on the internet, try to buy it like a prefabricated system, mm -hmm. I, either I just wasn't searching right. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're out there. 
Um, but it was fun just kind of building it, figuring it out, putting it together. I stole my facilities crew from the office for, for a week and we put it together like a pool. It's, uh, it's got its own pump, UV clarifier, sand filter. Um, and it's all, uh, yeah, but for, it's out, and that's off on the outside of the garage. So if you go on the inside of the garage, it just looks like this thing you would see in a, in a hotel. So, I, I mean, I, I'll, I would love to teach anybody how to do it that wants to do it. So I just have to ask this question. Are you a Wim Hof fan? <laughs> I love Wim Hof. Uh, I, saw, I, saw him at, I saw him live at a Tony Robbins seminar out in San Jose probably about five years ago. And uh, I mean, I, I've never held my breath that long. <laughs> that was, uh, I, I didn't know we could as humans, but he's, uh, what an amazing, you know, I saw him sit in a bucket of ice for like, 60 minutes one time, something ridiculous. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I would get frostbite if I did that, but, yeah. um, but he's trained his brain to do something that's beyond. So it's uh, it just goes to show that mind over matter a thousand percent. Yeah. That may be how you were able to do the 50 to 70 patients a day and running businesses and starting a new one, right. All the million things that you didn't know where you found the time. Well, if you're dialed in from a health and wellness perspective and you've got a routine and habits, that allows you to be infinitely uh, more uh, efficient than what most people are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I find, you know, I, I found as the older I get, the more I'm trying to uh, biohack, um, trying to find the things that will keep me uh, keep, naturally keep me young. I love David, David Sinclair. Um, he's got some, some great tidbits and um, there's just, there's so many things out there now that, that can promote anti-aging longevity. Um, that's one of the things in Sullivan's new program, the life extender program. There's, there's a lot of tidbits in there. So uh, honestly, that's one of the, one of the things that I'm looking forward to in the next, in the next couple of, uh, next couple of months and years is looking into doing a regenerative medicine clinic. And it's not just, uh, not about just doing stem cells or PRP and things of that nature, but really get, building a lot of education and things that are, because <laughs> there's a lot of uh, things in regenerative uh, medicine that aren't really uh, financially remunerative. Um, but really can improve the quality of life if you take the time to teach people. So that's where I'd love to go with things. And like I said, even if it doesn't make, make a lot of money doing it, um, if we can figure out how to improve lives and, you know, obviously it's not just the, the quantity, it's the quality of life. Um, right. But quantity of life would be really cool if we could start to see people living past a hundred and, uh, and doing so with young faces and great joints and, uh, um, you name it. So that's, that's, uh, that's one of the things I want to move on to next. So it's really tragic that this is audio only because any listener out there, if you could see what I'm seeing on our zoom monitor. So Mike, are you 46, 47? Uh, turn 47 next week. Okay. There you go. You look 27. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so it's working. On the <laughs> it's working, man. I mean, Thank but you. I mean, when I saw you in person, there's no way I, I would have said you were in your early 30s. I literally, I'm not blowing smoke. It's it's very true. Um, but I, I love that thing too. And I do want to go into more on Star Mount and like, especially what there was a major inflection point with COVID in particular. Mm -hmm. And you could say probably, well, oh, well, that's when people started knowing you. I mean, in a much bigger way. But what I want to emphasize is 
there's a whole lot more to you and your story and Starmount than administering COVID tests or COVID, you know, inoculations, et cetera. And it, there's this huge gap, I think, in Western medicine. I, I go to a naturopath for a reason, and my mom was a nurse, and she, she, right? But they don't teach the MDs. And I was on a global board for uh, international health, uh, or, uh, yeah, international health services by an ER doc out of Philly. But they say, he said, man, we had one course and that's it. One course on nutrition, two hours, I think on sleep, you know, well, no wonder. And then you've got, you know, sorry, but you got pharma saying, Hey, you know, the answer is our pill, you know, or our whatever, but I I'm a huge believer that there's, there's a whole lot more because our bodies were uniquely designed and like miraculously designed. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit more about like, as you're, as we unpack a little bit more on star mountain, what you're doing, you know, this whole, whether it be regenerative, regenerative medicine, the things that you're doing for teaching others, like there's a humongous need from credible sources, not just, yeah, I, I, I heard it on TikTok from some guy who's not a doctor, but, you know, whatever, he's peddling this or that. So talk to us a little bit more about what life was like before March 13, 2020. Sure. And, and then, you know, the, the, the crazy ride that you've been on for the last two years. Yeah. Um, and, and, and before I talk about that, I, I mean, I, I share the, the same, you know, whenever you can treat something naturally, it's obviously better. Our bodies evolved over, you know, thousands and thousands of years to be this way. Um, but there's limitations. Um, you know, I've, I've had hypertension since I was 12 years old. Um, and, you know, if, uh, and I tried every natural thing you possibly think to, to, uh, treat it, but without, without, a um, blood pressure medication, you know, my arteries would be getting beaten up on a regular basis and my chances at a long, longer life would be decreased. So uh, along with everything, there's autoimmune diseases. We, we have to, you know, we have to allow Western medicine and natural medicine to work together. And when, when that can be the, that, that can be integrated properly. I mean, there's lots of models. I mean, traditional medicine is starting to definitely go that route. You're seeing it everywhere. And that's going to be extremely beneficial for our patients, um, our, our community. Um, but, you know, as far as the, the, the COVID story, and I want to thank you because it was fun telling, talking about non-COVID stuff for a while. Um, but I don't mind talking about COVID stuff. It was, it was a fun journey these last two years. The, uh, the random decision three months, and it was in October of 2019 to upgrade our lab um, to, uh, to a high complexity lab that, that allowed us to order in January when we saw what was going on in China. We were one of the first organizations, first uh, private clinics to order a, what's called a thermal fisher, which is the, the instrument that you need to do high volume COVID testing. We ordered it in January. So we were one of the first, first places because we were first on the, on, the, on the list. We were one of the first places to get it. So we had already been doing testing um, for a while. And uh, one of the things that, you know, it was echoed probably over and over and over again. I know the EOS, you have to say seven times in order for people to get it. It was, you know, let's just find a way to be relevant to the community during the pandemic. And whether it's testing or whatever it might be, um, and it turned out to be testing, we figured out, I mean, we were setting up tents to do drive-throughs back in, you know, 
at, at end of March, to be honest, we were like, what's going on in other parts in Italy? We were researching like what, what we could do once we did get our equipment, you know, we were, we were ready to go. So, um, and then randomly we started getting phone calls from, uh, it started up and seemed like in Forsyth County up, up in, uh, Greensboro, Winston-Salem, Guilford County up that way. A lot of companies were, were asking if they could uh, get some help. Like there was a food, uh, food packaging company that had an outbreak and they're like, we have 150 employees. Can you test them? And, and then the next thing we know, like the, some of the county governments were reaching out to us and we we're like, yeah, sure. We'll come up there. And, and we were like, you know, we don't know how we're going to really make money off this. Hopefully we can, you know, because there was very little guidance from the insurance carriers back then. We were always just like, all right, let's just, we'll, we'll, we'll provide the service and hopefully we can be, be made even. And, uh, and then eventually the state, of, you know, so I'm really jumping far ahead. Eventually the state of North Carolina saw what we were doing. They saw our website, which our website, you know, is very clear that we, you know, we're, we're, we're geared towards going into underserved communities. And they said, you know, there's a real need for COVID testing in, in areas of uh, areas of North Carolina that whether it's a rural area or, you know, an urban area where there's not a lot of access to healthcare. So that's what we were tasked with. And it eventually evolved into being in 30 different counties. And then, you know, once we started learning more about the vaccine at the end of 2020, we said, you know, let's grab a bunch of those ultra low freezers. And, and uh, so we did that. We were told we didn't need them, um, which was kind of funny because you didn't need them for, because they would come prepackaged for 30 days. But once the uh, demand dropped down and the, the supply in the state, the state kind of asked us if we would store. So we were we were storing, you know, almost a million doses of vaccine. We became a storage and distribution center for for a good bit during the during the pandemic. And then uh, and then just transitioned. We were reading an email one day and we said we saw that monoclonal antibody therapy was available in the outpatient setting. And we said, you know what, what if we uh, set up a few clinics around the state where people like this was before Florida, Florida seemed like they got all the attention. But um, I would say, in my in my eyes, it was Starman that did it first. We actually had we had uh, three clinics set up. Um, two were in Charlotte, and one was on the east part of the state. And then we opened up a couple more, and uh, and it started with Regen Cove. And uh, and so you know when there's a COVID positive patient, they would immediately get the uh, the antibody therapy. And then obviously Eli Lilly and GlaxoSmithKline had their and their their versions of the monoclonal antibody. So we just kind of came became a COVID services uh, organization. And, uh, and, and it was always, you know, I, I said, we were, we were more of a, uh, logistics company in, in, in a sense, we weren't so much a healthcare, we were a healthcare logistics company. We were just always looking to solve a problem. Like if, if the state was having a hard time figuring out a way how to get the monoclonal monoclonal therapy into people's bodies, um, you know, a lot of times the hospitals were, were systems were referring to us. And sometimes when, when their inventory ran low, we would send to the hospitals to make sure that they had enough. And um, it was just such a, yeah, everybody was just working together throughout the, throughout that time. And, uh, but no, our organization, we grew from 120 employees during the, during the 24 month period, I would say we onboarded over 5,000 people. Um, at the height of it, we probably employed over 2000 people um, for, like I said, testing vaccines and, and antibody therapy. Um, and right now is, you know, we've, we've had to scale up and scale down with the, with, as the variants of the surges have uh, rolled back and forth. We're hoping there's, we're hoping we're done. We're hoping there's no more surges, but um, one of the things we're, we're, we've gotten good at is we've had a lot of loyalty for people that um, have left and wanted to come back. And when they understand that's the nature of this and 
Um, so one, one of the things we're actually working on now that's non-COVID that is, is pretty exciting is being is that doing, and who would have thought this, but being a disaster relief emergency preparedness, being able to uh, um, mobilize quickly, whether it's wildfire, tornado, hurricane, our, our organization is uniquely um, experienced because of COVID to react quickly, staff quickly. Uh, we have the, the medical expertise now to be able to go in, provide whether it's first aid um, or, you know, any type of service in, in that in that wheelhouse. So it's a, so yeah, there's the long explanation, or I tried to make it short, um, of, you know, March 13th, 2020 to where we are now. And we're doing other stuff. We have a, um, it's called the Blessing Foundation. Um, that's my mom's maiden name. It's it sounds like a religious organization. Now, granted, my mom goes to church every day. She's one of those ladies. But, um, but I will say, uh, you know, we're uh, we're looking to do things, uh, whether it's for the county um, and wherever we can plug ourselves in to, to help out. Um, we have, uh, uh, like I said, we're uh, I, I one of my best friend that I used to paint houses with. He's sending. Uh, uh, he he owns an international company that's supporting the Ukraine right now. We we donated twenty thousand uh, dollars as an as an organization to uh, to to him so he can go over and support the uh, relief efforts in the Ukraine. Uh, we actually have a, a couple of employees that are they're heading over there, I believe, as well. So it's like I said, our, our, we're we're going. There, there's more uh, there's more opportunities right now than we know what to do with. We're just trying to pick off what makes sense for us as an organization. So, I mean, what an, an amazing, like a rocket ship roller coaster ride, right? I mean, it, it took you into an updraft that nobody probably foresaw. And yet you, you saw things on the horizon before a lot of people did. You know, if you were already making purchases, et cetera, back in January <laughs> and, and before getting and readying in late 2019, um, which is, it, it is really amazing. Give us, you know, a couple lessons learned and they could be painful lessons. They could be, you know, highs, uh, you know, what you learned during this period of time, because this is a, that's a marked difference, you know, like a massive logistics company where you've onboarded 5,000 people when you're 120 versus when you started out as a, you know, chiropractor, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. I would love to know, you know, like a couple key lessons that you learned during this period of time. Um, you know, so let me clarify in October, 2019, I didn't know about, COVID, obviously, we just randomly upgraded our, upgraded our lab. And if we that that if we hadn't done that, none of this would have been possible. But, um, you know, as far as uh, geez, you know, I there's so, so many lessons we learned over the over the course of, of that time period. Um, you know, we, we had to grow some thick skin, the uh, especially during some of the surges. Uh, there wasn't a lot of other organizations testing, you know, I, and I, I mean, as, as recently as the Omicron surge the year before uh, we had tested 70,000 people and uh, during that time period, and that felt like a lot. And then uh, we were told after the Delta surge by a few epidemiologists that there wasn't going to be another significant surge. And we made a choice to staff up and say, you know what, just in case there is another one, we, we added we had a 1200 
employees in a, in a six week period. And it wasn't just that, you know, one of the things that I really had to take in mind was training because when you hire that many people, I say I'm bored at 5,000. Let me tell you something. Some people didn't last an hour. Uh, they'd show up to the site with the wrong attitude or they, you know, obviously weren't, I don't want to go into details, but you'd, you'd, you'd have some quite very, we would send them training materials. That was one of the other things that set our organization up at the end of 2019. I said, I didn't want to open up a third medical clinic until we had a robust training department. So we actually bought it a 3000 square foot building, put learning management systems in. Um, we had hired a, a retired school teacher that he retired in his forties. Amazing guy. Um, I'd love to give him a shout out. Michael Levy. He's a, um, He's with the health department right now, just an amazing man. He built all these learning management systems and we, tr- we were able to transition those into like teaching somebody how to answer the telephone or provide how, how to do, uh, do an intake on a patient in an urgent care setting. We were able to transition that into doing, this is how you do traffic control. This is how you do vaccine prep. This is how you do a proper COVID test or registration process. And when we needed to hire somebody out in you know, Wake County, which we were obviously never gonna see on ourselves, we would do like a zoom interview and then we would send them the training materials and then the site lead. Um, and that was one other thing I think, you know, is really interesting. My, I talked about my buddy Bill that have been friends since, you know, we were little kids with the painting company. He, uh, he, he works with a lot of former Navy seals and when vaccines rolled out and we were asked to be in 30 different counties, you had to have really good leadership. Um, and we had clinical leadership, but clinical leadership doesn't always translate to, um, you know, just general leadership. I don't know what the right word is there, but the, uh, so we, we hired about, I asked Bill, I was like, Hey, can, can you direct me? And so we, we brought on about six of his former Navy SEALs that had experience in setting up tents, logistics to be able to scale that quickly and go into 30 different places. It wouldn't have been possible without, uh, without bringing on those, those guys, just amazing. And they're, they're some of the same guys that are over in the Ukraine right now that we're, uh, we're, we're working with, but, uh, but no, the, uh, the hard part, like you said, where I, one of the hardest lessons, and it probably was good for me um, as the leader of the organization, um, was just seeing when, when people had to wait on their test results and it was past, past what we were normally providing. We'd, you know, during the easy times, we would get their results in less than 24 hours. Um, but during the surge, um, the long lines, people waiting four hours in line. Oh my gosh. Back when I used to see patients, I, could, I couldn't stand making people wait in their rooms for it. I, I would, I would be the type of doctor. I'd, I'd come back from lunch early and I could see a, a waiting room full of patients. I'd, I'd actually go grab their charts and pull them back into the room myself because it just, so having to look at a line with that's four hours long and people frustrated. And then after they got their test, our, our lab, and then our overflow lab um, having issues and, you know, we did, we went, like I said, prior, previous year was 70,000, we did 145,000 tests. And even though 90% of the people got the results actually in the 72 hours, when there's 10% of 145,000, um, 14,500 people that beyond that, you're going to get a lot of angry phone calls, frustration, and rightfully so. I mean, we had patients that were immunocompromised that needed results so they could travel or they could go back to work. And, oh, and we, we, I, during January, I, I didn't sleep. I was, uh, we worked on Christmas day. We worked on new year's day. There was no holidays. There was, and the same thing went for the leadership team. Tracy was there all the time. She was out. I was directing traffic in Matthews at one point. Um, cause I just couldn't stand like the, the idea of we were short staffed, you know, 
people, our staff would, uh, we, some of the sites we had to double staff because they were just burnt out. They were tired and they're like, I'm not going in today. Cause it's, you know, 28 degrees and no matter how much layering you have, you know, you have to take your gloves off and you got, you're still wearing rubber gloves to do a test. It just doesn't, doesn't do it. So we, like I said, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but my goodness, like that was a really painful time um, for the organization and me personally. I just, I couldn't stand letting people down, even though a majority of the people were actually getting their results and we got a lot of gratitude from the community, the 10%. And I'm not saying that they were wrong for being frustrated. It was, it was hard to take. Um, and, but you know, it, it, it definitely, it was learning and, and it taught us something as an organization. So I have 10 different ways I want to go based off of what you just said. Um, I want to start with hiring the Navy SEALs to help with leadership and scaling. So mm-hmm. by doing that and bringing people with that type of experience on, how did you as the leader of the organization, how did you grow as a leader by bringing people like that in, into the organization? Oh, I mean, they, they were, uh, they were masters of logistics. Um, some of these guys, they would, they would come in and after they would see a site, how it was operating, they'd come, they would travel back from Greensboro and meet me uh, in my back porch and we'd have dinner and they would say, all right, this is how we do this better. And I would just loved it. Love listening to their thought process. Um, and how, and one of the other things I love about these military guys is they're quick. They don't go on and on and on and on about like how to do something. They just get straight to the point. They're like, let's do this, 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 and this, and this is how we can be more successful. And, um, like I said, having Tracy there, like I said, she, she just amazing. She would pull in all the right people with me and we, we would implement quickly. Um, and you know, once they were gone, they, what they, uh, what they helped us with is still within the organization. So yeah. Um, yeah. it was. And, and then another thing that really stands out, and, and I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners are picking up on this. When we started this conversation, we're talking about you're a chiropractor, you're, you've got a couple practices, then you're into healthcare management. And yet what you're doing and the position you were in to even be able to do it of you've got a lab, you have a training facility, you were able to staff up, you've got the organizational structure, you had infinitely more in place than what somebody from the outside would expect a healthcare management company or a chiropractic practice or anything like that to be in place. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit as to the why of that? Why do you keep expanding? Why do you get the training facility? Why do you have an upgraded lab before you necessarily need one? Those types of things. (laughs) While you were asking me, I'm like, I I, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I don't know why I just need, I need to keep busy. Um, The challenge, are we back to the the challenge? challenge they uh maybe a little bit of adhd but um yeah just just life's about keeping moving forward and uh if uh you know if i can find something that uh that we can do as an organization that solves a problem um and figure out the economics behind it which i, I do think that's a huge part of this a lot a lot of what i did built on um i'll share this with you i when i'd uh I'd taken on quite a bit of business debt um, prior to 40 to get these, uh, get these businesses up and operating. And I, uh, in, in my early to mid thirties, I said, you know what, instead of paying these off over 15 or 20 years, I adjusted all the amortization schedules myself 
and I just made additional principal payments. So all of my, what I consider to be uh, blue sky debt, bad debt, I, I made the last payment in February of, uh, of, of uh, before I turned, four, I turned 40 in March and uh, I wiped off all my debt. And that was probably the number one thing that enabled me to have the cash flow to take on um, things that were going to drain my bank accounts. I always said I never, up until uh, I never had a ton of liquidity. Um, I always had a lot of assets, um, but I had enough liquidity to be responsible. And I, I was never irresponsible, but um, but I I always would push my dollars and myself as far as they could go to take on the next to take on the next thing. Um, Whereas I think, and I never, you know, people all, all the time are like, wow, you took that risk on. I never felt like anything's ever been a risk. I always felt like, uh, I mean, here and there, maybe I felt like I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know what I'm really getting into. But for the most part, I always felt like we, I was, I was, I was betting on, I know this sounds cliche, but I felt like I was just betting on myself. And I guess when you do that, it doesn't feel that risky. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, do, I do think, I think the root, Maybe the root of your question was, I wouldn't have been able to do this if I didn't. Well, one of the roots of your questions, I wouldn't have been able to do some of this stuff if I didn't have the, the necessary cash flow, or at least that's how I translated your question. And having the uh, having the ability to get out of debt um, as as a as a business owner, um, so I could take on other challenges and free my mind. Really, um, that was uh, that was the other thing. When when you're in when you're in bad debt, it's hard to think proactively. Um, you're always thinking about making that loan payment. As soon as you get out, and, and when I say debt, I'm like I, I still had real estate debt, but the, the the business debt. Once you get out of that, it lifts, it lets your shoulders down, and you can think more clearly. Um, you know, it's one of those things I think I forget about a lot, but I think that's one of the major reasons I, I had some success after forty. Yeah, nope, that makes a lot of sense, right? You. You were forward thinking enough where you're able to position yourself to be able to take advantage of opportunities as they arise instead of getting complacent, coasting or plateauing would probably be a better word. And then an opportunity may come up and you're just not able to do anything about it, right? You're on the sidelines watching it at that point. Oh, and it's painful. It takes a lot of fiscal discipline to make those extra principal payments when you could be traveling with them or doing something right. else. But you know, like I said, I, I'll give one of my old mentors uh, credit, Tom Brown, for for keying me into that one. Um, I think that's I, I probably it's probably my, one of my most overlooked um, things that uh, contributed to the organization's success was uh, was getting out of debt. And I know as I, I know as a business owner, and entrepreneur, that's not always possible. But I would say get out of the bad debt first. If you can pluck off the ones that are that don't look friendly on your balance sheet, right. it's gonna it's gonna help you. Yeah, and and that's a good point to make, right? Like not all debt is bad debt. This isn't the '80s where a mortgage is twelve percent and everything else is higher, right? When right. you can get something that's two and a half, three percent, that may be something that's good to carry. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point to make. Yep. So you I'm, said. You, you said something, Mike, that I thought was like, like, we're going to use this one. <laughs> Life's about keeping moving forward. And, and I remember before even meeting you, I got a, a kind of a, a mental picture in my mind uh, just from Tracy, who just thinks, you know, you are the best. But you are like a whirling dervish, like you are just the energizer bunny. You you come out of that cold bath and you're ready to roll, man. So 
Um, I, but I love that energy um, about you. And, you know, the, the, for anybody listening and wondering, well, what can, what can I do, you know? Well, man, there's a whole lot of uh, <laughs> inspiration in this story that, you know, you don't have to de- keep settling with defining yourself as a this or that. You could have said, well, I'm a, a barterer <laughs> in, in elementary school or I'm selling <laughs> shoes and, and, and stuffed animals or, you know, I'm a house painter. But, you know, you're a lifetime learner and you're you're a ripple maker is what you are. You are a ripple maker. So thank you for making such positive ripples in our community, in our country and also outside of our country now as well. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Mike, for for what you're doing, for your energy, for who you are. It's it's positively infectious. Thank, thank you, Gary. I, I really appreciate it. And Ben, this was a this this was a blast. I mean, I, I uh, up until this year, I was always terrified of, of doing stuff like this. Now I've gotten so used to it, I kind of enjoy it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, you you wouldn't be able to tell that that you used to fear this. This is uh, this has been a tremendous conversation. Thanks so much for sharing everything, Mike. Any any final thoughts that you want uh, to leave people with, and then also, where's the best place for them to connect with you? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I mean, the, the thing that where I, where I have my, most of my passion now, um, things that kind of, because at this point, looking for a, looking for a purpose to kind of drive your, your passion. And, and it's, it's mostly getting back to my roots. I, uh, you know, my, besides being a chiropractor, which was very passionate, I really wanted to be a school teacher, high school, school teacher, mm. love teaching. And um, as, as we form our blessing foundation, our nonprofit, um, I find that I think the thing that's going to bring me the most passion and excitement going forward is, is not just the, the clinical aspects of having this nonprofit, but the non-clinical being able to, uh, I, I love the idea of developing a community resource center and, and working in it myself um, as a teacher, um, teaching, you know, how to budget for families and, and things of that nature. So um, yeah, just you know, as I've transitioned so many times in life, I've had, I've had to refine a, a new passion. Um, so, you know, and let me share this one last thing, I guess this is probably uh, very goal oriented. Um, and when I set that goal and I made my last, my last loan payment the month before I turned 40 and got out of debt, it was my first experience being, well, I shouldn't say not that I haven't had a bum day or a depressed day, but I actually had a few days where I was just kind of depressed and I learned there very, very quickly that um, goal setting isn't, isn't always healthy if you, if you hold yourself to a certain expectation without looking for the passion for finding the reason. And I, since, since then, I went back to my coach, my fir- very first coach from years ago, I flew out to Austin, Texas, and I said, hey, I made my last loan payment. I just, I don't feel right. Something's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm empty. And, uh, and that once identified, that's what it is. It's really just making sure you're finding your passion and, and going towards it. And, and it's okay. Don't beat yourself up. If you have a few weeks, months in your transition where you're not quite sure something will hit you eventually. Um, so just no matter, no matter what age you are, I don't care if you're over a hundred, don't ever lose that. So there's a, there's my last tidbit, I guess. I love it. It's a great way to, to wrap this up. So thank you so much, Mike. This has been tremendous. 
Thank you, Ben. Thank, thank you, Gary. Thank you. It's a, an honor to have you on this thing and uh, can't wait for everybody else to hear it. Oh, one, we, we would be remiss if we didn't understand and have you help us understand how you got to the name Starmount Healthcare. So, Starmount, um, so my last name, Estramonte, uh, Estra in Spanish, Estrella, Star, Monte Mountain. Um, and my family is from Northern Italy. So uh, I was told way back when that actually it just means on the other side of the hill, but I, I like Star Mount better. Um, so I, I just kind of made it up on my own, but, uh, yeah, my, my family over in Italy reminds me, they're like, that's not what it means. <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds cool though. Uh, one of them actually said it means exceptional. And I was like, I'll go with that over anything, but you know, I guess it just means on the other side of the hill. It's kind of boring. <laughs> well, I, I you got my fiance over here saying, no, yeah, she's like, it's not boring. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's taking Italian no. lessons because we're getting, yeah, we're getting married in Italy next this year. So she's saying that's not what it means. Oh, uh, congratulations! That's awesome. Family. Oh, it's the it's the family my family on the other side of the mountain. So. Oh, cool. Oh, there we have it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're on this side of the mountain over here in Charlotte, <laughs> North Carolina. Is blessed to have you here. And, um, and thank you so much. Again, you are a positive ripple maker and we really appreciate that. And, and the team that you've allowed to continue to grow around you and empower them that not every entrepreneur is willing or able to do. So I can't wait to hear, um, the more ripple, you know, the additional ripple effects in the non-clinical side and what you continue to teach people because the stuff that you've got here has been very powerful. So thank you again. Thank you guys.